All right, let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 11. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18, as we continue our series through the book of Acts. Acts 11, 1 through 18. While you're turning there, I want you to, I want you to ask yourself a question, seriously, and I, and I, I want you to try to, to articulate in your own mind an answer. What is your greatest need? And I don't mean like a, the greatest need, reconciliation to God, the forgiveness of sins. I mean in your life, in your individual life, where you're at right now, what is your most significant need? There's probably a lot of things that you could come up with. I can come up with a bunch of things that are needs, but what's the most significant? Try and lock that in. You need God to change something. What is it? What is the most significant thing that God could change in your life? And I'm willing to bet that the vast majority of us, when we, when we answer that question, we wind up focusing on something that is circumstantial. It's a situation. It's a context. It's an affliction, a pain. It is something difficult that we are going through. And those are real needs that are totally appropriate for us to pray about. And praise God if he actually delivers us from that or changes our circumstances. But I get the feeling like if, if, the, if, if, we, if there was such a thing as a genie's lamp and you get the one wish, because in this economy you don't get three, you get the one, you get the one wish and you rub the lamp and the genie comes out and it's like, all right, you got one wish. What do you want? I'll change anything you want. I think most of us would choose poorly. Because I think most of us, myself included, would default to a current crisis that I want alleviated. And while that is appropriate to deal with and it's, it's significant, I'm not downplaying those needs at all, what is more needed than the external changes around us are internal changes inside of us. It's far more significant because the external crises around us will come and go. As soon as one is resolved, there is another. We will never come to the end of experiencing pain, difficulty, loss, and frustration. But what we can experience is internal change that stays with us throughout it all. Our greatest needs are internal. And that's what I want us to see here in part, what I want us to see in this passage. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11, and here's the principle I want you to hold on to. The greatest work that God will ever do in your life will be through his word. The greatest work that God will ever do in any of our lives will not be his providential acts circumstantially around us, though those are amazing and significant. The greatest work that God will ever do in your life will be his internal work in you through the ministry of his word. That's what I want us to see. And so since today we're looking at, at verses 1 uh, through 18, this is really essentially a recap of what happened in 10. Right? This is Peter is explaining what happened. And so we've already had Oliver and Scott and Travell preach very well through that. So I'm not going to repeat all the stuff that they've already gone through. We're going to walk through what's happening in this passage. And then I want us to return to this idea of God's greatest work in our lives 
through the ministry of his word. So let's start at the beginning. What's happening in verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So here is what's happening. God is at work. It's the book of Acts, right? If you've spent time in the book of Acts, if you've been with us, you see that God is at work. He's doing his thing. People are being converted. The church is preaching the gospel. People are being changed. They are becoming a part of this, this growing, what looks like a movement of people who, to, in the eyes of many of their contemporaries, are just this spin-off splinter group of Jews that are renegade. Right? That's what it looks like to the people around them. But what God is doing is he's converting people. He's changing their hearts and their minds. They're believing in Jesus. The church is growing. And now even the Gentiles are believing. Gentiles, the non-Jews. This all started in Israel, didn't it? Right? Because the law and the promises and the covenants, they all went to Israel. So it all starts in Israel. But as the gospel is going forth in the new covenant, it's going to Jew and Gentile. So now the Gentiles are beginning to believe. That's what's happening. And something to consider here is that God is actually always at work. It's not that God sometimes rests and you know, isn't, isn't doing anything. right? God is always at work through his people. He's always at work through his people. And the way that we usually think about this is that we, there are words and deeds. right? There's exhortation and example. right? There's the things that we do and the things that we say. Now, what we typically say and, and, and emphasize is, hey, listen, it's not enough to, to talk the talk. You've got to walk the walk. That's what we like to say, right? God works through us, through our speaking and our doing, and you don't want to be a hypocrite and merely say something, but then never back it up with how you live. So make sure that you back it up with deeds. And that's true. James makes a point of this, right? If you, if you claim to have faith but do not have works, your faith is dead, it's useless, it's not real. Right? If you say that you love your neighbor, but you're like, oh, here you're having a tar hard time. Must be rough. Peace out. Have a good time. Like, that's not real love. So we know that our faith and our love and the expression of those things needs to be balanced or complemented by works. But we need to flip it because it's very much true. It's equally true that our works are not enough. We need words. It's, it's not enough to be the example because here's the bottom line. Your good deeds and best examples, your most altruistic efforts, your, your, your most profound expression of love and sacrifice to somebody cannot get them saved. No one is going to be converted by your example. They will only be converted if they actually hear the word. Now, certainly, your example matters. It absolutely matters. Scripture makes this point. But we cannot rely on that. We must speak the words of God. We must preach the gospel. Deeds simply are not enough on their own. It takes God's word to change a person's heart, soul, and character. So that's what's happening here. The, the, the church is preaching the gospel, and people are being changed. Now, whenever God is at work... Right? Especially when God is at work in, in large, demonstrable ways, there's almost always some people pushing back, opposing the work. And we see that happening here. Look at verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? There's a problem in their mind. So what's going on here? God's doing his thing, and there are people who are frustrated. Who are these people? The circumcision party. 
Well, you'll say it like that because it's not a party. <laughs> the circumcision party is different than the circumcision party, right? This is a, a group of people. Nobody wants to go to a circumcision party. That ain't fun. A, a, the circumcision party was a group of, of believers, right, in, in the early church who were confused, right? Because they were a part of the old covenant, right, that we, where they had uh, sacrifices and priests and the temple and, and certain specific commands, they were, they were called to keep the, the, the laws, right, the, the, the ceremonial as, and the civil laws as well as the moral laws. But now they're, they're coming out of the old covenant and into this new covenant. And, and some of them are struggling with what to do with God's law. And they're thinking, well, we've always kept the law. We've got to keep the law. And the real sticking point for them was circumcision. Circumcision was a sign that you belonged to the covenant people, Israel. Right? The, the, the boys were, were, were circumcised when they were babies, and, and this was a symbolic act, right? I mean, it was a, an actual act, but it symbolized the, the, the circumcision of the heart and consecration to the Lord. And they still valued this so much because it was such an identifier for who they were as Jews. Now, as Christians, they're like, well, it's the same God, so circumcision still matters. And they began to really think like, well, you've got to be circumcised. You have to be Jewish if you're going to follow Jesus. This is why they're so upset. They're like, hey, how, how, how are you going to accept the Gentiles? God doesn't even accept the Gentiles. They've got to become Jewish. They've got to be circumcised. They're confused. They're not coming from a bad place. I don't think that they're, they're evil in their hearts here. And I, I think they're just legitimately, legitimately confused as to how to function as this church. It's a new thing. This always happens. There's, there's always opposition. I mean, God is really doing something and they can't see it. God is really doing something and they are missing it. Not only missing it, but opposing it. And this happens a lot. It happens because, well, people either don't understand what God is doing, so they oppose it, or they oppose it because they're not experiencing the work that God is doing. They're missing out. There's two basic reasons I see that, that people begin to push back. Either they're ignorant and they don't understand. Now, not everyone who doesn't understand is resistant. Sometimes they don't understand and they, 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 they go with it anyways. Some people don't understand it. They can't wrap their minds around it. And so they're resistant. Other people, they're not experiencing it. So they doubt that it's real. Happens all the time. In fact, one of the things that I like to go back to in church history is the Great Awakening. Raise your hand if you know what the Great Awakening is, if you're familiar with it, okay? So some of you aren't familiar with the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening was, uh, was an act of God, a work of God. It was a, a revival, but on a large scale. It happened here uh, in North America in the 18th century, think 1720 to 1760. And during this period of time, masses of people began to be converted. I mean, all kinds of people, people in the church, but tons of people outside of the church converted, like actually changed. They went from not really believing the gospel to following Jesus. Huge numbers of people were being converted. And then there was revival as well to all of these Christians up and down the East Coast in particular, right? That's, that's where it's all happening. And they're, they're, they're hearing the gospel, but they're hearing it with fresh ears. And so these Christians, maybe who had been languishing for some time, begin to experience a real transformation of their souls. So they're being revived. Their affection for Jesus is deeper. Their love for their brothers and sisters is more genuine. They begin to walk more carefully in the ways of God. And because of this, more and more people began to come to church to hear these preachers preach the gospel. That's all they were doing, was preaching the gospel. But then there began to be some pushback. 
But there began to be pushback. And the, and the pushback was because, well, you have these large crowds and they're preaching, they're, they're emphasizing certain doctrines that hadn't been as emphasized recently, like the doctrine of the new birth, being born again, um, the doctrine of, of, of justification by faith alone, the doctrines that we're all very familiar with here at Redeemer. Well, some of these pastors didn't like this. And so the preachers that were instrumental in preaching the gospel and being used by God to bring about this revival were being rejected. The churches would say, you can't preach in our church. So they were like, okay, well, we'll just, we'll just go preach outside because we've got to preach. So they started preaching outside. That sounds quaint or fun to you and I. Uh, that was unheard of back then. Nobody did that, especially not like clergy. It's gross and it is, there's bugs and sun. I'm not down with either. But they were like, look, we're going to go outside and we're going to do it. Not because we want to, it's not to be cool. It's because we don't have anywhere else to go. The churches are shutting their doors because they don't like the transformation, the change. And they're, they're, they seem to be opposed to the work that God is doing. And so now they're meeting outside, which is another thing that they don't like. This is uncool, it's unprofessional, you're meeting outside. But now even more people came. People gathered in crowds of 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 people at a time would sometimes gather together to simply hear the word preached. So with these new emphases, these new things that are happening, meeting outside, large crowds, God is doing something huge. And those that were opposing it and shutting their doors and saying, this is not of God, were called old lights, old lights. And the ones that were for it were called new lights. People like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield. They were the new lights. And so the old lights, they could not wrap their brains around what God was doing. And so they rejected it. They weren't experiencing it themselves, so they rejected it. For whatever reason, and there were, I mean, there was, you know, this guy Charles Chauncey, who was pretty well known, he would write against it, and then Jonathan Edwards would write for the revivals. They couldn't see that it was of God. Too many things attached to it that didn't seem to square up with Scripture, so it's not of God. People oppose God's work when they don't understand it or when they don't experience it. So that's what's happening here. And Peter, Peter explains in verses 4 through 17. Let me just read it for us. But Peter began ex and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheep descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me, and looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means. He's opposing the work of God. Even Peter is doing it. He, Peter hears from God, rise and eat. Let's go. And Peter's first response is because he can't wrap his brain around it. He goes, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Peter's like, listen, I've kept the law. I was raised a Jew. Uh, there were certain meats and certain animals you said we could not eat. I did not eat those things. I don't get close to that stuff. I've only eaten what was kosher. I've only eaten what, what was appropriate. And now you're saying, eat, I, I, I can't do it. Verse 9, but the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. Peter didn't understand that the transition from old covenant to new covenant changed a lot. And those laws that governed Israel as a theocracy were not going to govern the church 
of Jesus Christ that are going to, that will exist in every country and every tribe and every tongue and every space. Sacrifices will no longer be offered for Jesus as the sacrifice. So he's struggling with it and now he begins to see as God is telling him, no, all things have been made clean. Verse 11, at the, behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent, in which we were uh, sent to me from Caesarea. And the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house, house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So Peter's explaining, he's like, listen, I know I understand your, your, your hesitation, your opposition to this work, but I assure you it's of God because here's what happened. I preached, they received the spirit just like we did. I remembered the words of God. I cannot oppose God. It's not what I expected or anticipated, but it is of God. So let's go. And when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. They changed. See, there are some people that when they read this passage, they see circumcision party. Hey, circumcision party. When they see circumcision party, they say like, oh, well, those are the Judaizers that we read about in Galatians who were saying the same thing. You have to be circumcised in order to be one of God's children. But these are not the Judaizers. It's too early before that sect really gets developed. But these are like, Proto-Judaizers. These are the early formation of that kind of thinking. Now here, ultimately, they're corrected and they change. They turn. They, they realize that they were wrong and they let go of that and they embrace the work of God. But this will come up again later and we'll even see it more in the book, in the book of Acts. So that's the story, right? And we've already spent time in chapter 10 going through all of that. So I want, us to, I want us to really spend the rest of our time thinking about this, that the greatest work that God will ever do in your life will be through the ministry of his word. Even as you're thinking about all of these things that you need God to do, want God to do in your life, that deal with your circumstances, your temporal worldly needs, those are important and real. The most significant things that God will do will be internal. We need God to change our circumstances, yes, but more than that, we need God to change our hearts. So how does God use his word to change us? I'm just going to give you four ways in which the Lord does his greatest work in us. Four ways in which the Lord does his greatest work in us through the ministry of his word. And the first is conviction. God uses his word, that is Holy Scripture, to bring conviction into our consciousness, right? Into our hearts. Now, what do we mean by conviction, right? In the Christian tradition, like theologically, we mean uh, to, to be convicted by the Holy Spirit through the ministry of the word is to see and to be made sensitive of your own sin. That's what it is. It's to see, to identify, to have clarity, my sin, and to be made sensitive to it so that I'm grieved with a godly sorrow. That's conviction. 
And in that way, conviction gives way to repentance. Conviction only comes, this kind of conviction only comes by the word. You could be shamed. That's more of a social thing, right? You ever been shamed because you admit you like, I don't know, third day or Nickelback or whatever the band is you're not supposed to like. You admit you like something and everybody's like, oh, gross. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's embarrassing. I shouldn't have done. You can be shamed socially, right? But conviction is, is different. Conviction is a spiritual work. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 12, says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We're not talking about social shame. We're saying that the word of God uncovers what's going on inside of our own souls. It pierces and it reveals. It's why we need this. Why do we need, why is conviction such a great work? Why is conviction such an important work? Because without conviction, you would never change. You want to change, right? I need to change. Conviction is the first step. Conviction Without conviction, we, we cannot see who we really are because conviction shows us our weaknesses and that's a part of who we really are. It exposes the waywardness in us, not just our temptations, but even what's underneath that. Why are we so prone to those things? Conviction, convictions, conviction gives us wisdom about ourselves. You can have all the wisdom in the world about how things work out there, but if you don't have wisdom about yourself, you're not going to navigate anything. Conviction does that. It gives us insight into ourselves through revealing our sins and our transgressions, leading us into repentance, away from sin and towards the Lord. And this convicting work that God does is a great work. We need it. It's a part of the process of, of becoming that we're going to talk about. But it's, it's not just... It's not just a, a shame or a yelling about what you're not supposed to do. Don't do that. You're doing the wrong thing. It's, it's, it's better than that. Because with this conviction comes a, a redirection. Right? And that's, that really gives us the, the, the second thing that, that God does. The second greatest thing that God does uh, in our lives is by the ministry of his word, he gives us guidance. We experience conviction and we experience guidance. So the word does not merely shame us. It doesn't even just convict us of that we have done something wrong. The word also guides us. It doesn't just deny sin. It, it, it also directs us toward godliness. That's what scripture does. It directs us towards Christ, the Savior, who saves us from our sins. So scripture works not only to uncover the hurtful ways in us, it also sheds light onto the ways of God. It shows us the path that we're supposed to follow. The word of God gives us wisdom to see not only what God's way is, but how to walk that way in the world. This is why the word of God is oftentimes likened to a light or a lamp. In Psalm 119, verse 105, you guys have heard this. You probably sang the old praise chorus. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
Your word is a lamp. It, light, it brightens up the dark circumstances of my life. It shows me where I'm supposed to go. It tells me where the obstacles are, the, the roots and the branches that I need to duck under or jump over, like the, the, the rocky, uh, unstable areas of the path that I have to, to maneuver around. Your word shows me the path I'm supposed to take and the dangers that are out there to get me. It lights my way. And then also in Psalm 119, it's like verse 130. The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So here's the thing. The word of God is not just a book of rules. There are rules. <laughs> there are rules. There are laws. There are commands in the Bible that God wants us to keep, right? Love your neighbor. There's one. Now, but it's not just rules. Because as important as God's precepts are, Oftentimes, we're going to be in situations where we have to make a choice and we don't know precisely what to do. So the word of God gives us principles that govern and guide us in all areas of life. So even when the Bible doesn't tell us specifically what to do, it's a light. It grants understanding. It gives us wisdom so that we know what to do next. It grants us wisdom. See, wisdom... This is so important. Like, why do we need to be guided? You need to be guided. This is one of the most important things God will ever do in your life. You need to be guided by God's word because through the ministry of God's word and his guidance, you can actually thrive in the midst of those difficult, painful circumstances. The very things you think are more important than you're being guided Again, I'm not saying your circumstances are unimportant, and I'm not suggesting that you don't pray that God alleviates you of your suffering. You should. But the fear, the difficulty, the frustrations in life are always going to be there. One is replaced by another and then is replaced by another. We need to be guided through it all so that we don't just survive. See, that's where most of us are at. Most of us are just surviving in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. We're just hanging on. How you doing? What do we say? Surviving. Right? How you doing today? Like, well, a day above ground is a day better than below ground. That's just surviving. We all know that, right? We're just, we all experience that. I'm just hanging on. And I understand. I've been there a lot. But I don't, I don't want to just survive. I want to thrive. And that's what God's word does. God's word gives us wisdom so that we can actually thrive in the midst of a world that is crooked and corrupt, dangerous, disappointing. God convicts us. He guides us. Third, third. And this is, I think, the biggest thing that God will ever do in your life. It's the biggest thing God has ever done in any sinner's life is conversion. God converts the sinner that means he takes a person who is spiritually dead and makes them spiritually alive. He changes their heart. He changes their mind. He makes them new. Now they have faith and, and, and they have repentance and they be, begin to experience this new abundant life, conversion. And conversion doesn't happen by way of your example. It can only happen by way of God's word. That's how he does it. For example, Romans chapter 10 
Go to verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. People are converted by the word. It's the only way that it happens. Whether you're reading it, listening to it, meditating on it, remembering it, the word of God is what God uses to bring people to faith. And this is the greatest work. See, the world thinks of us, we talk about conversion. The world thinks like, oh yeah, so it's like you have a new favorite team, right? You got a new jersey, you, you know, you got new, new screensaver, you know, new wallpaper on your phone, got your rooting for a new team, got it, you know all the players, you know, you got, and uh, it's, it's not like that. This is, we're not talking about you choosing a new team. We're talking about God changing you. It's a completely different thing. Conversion isn't, Listen, we talk about conversion being oftentimes made up of faith and repentance. But faith and repentance is the expression of the change that God has done in us. God changes us. This is new heart that leads to real faith and it only happens by way of the word. It's you being remade. A new creature. It's the most significant thing that will ever happen in your life. So the work of conviction, the work of guidance, the word of, work of conversion, these are all some of the most significant things that God will ever do in your life. And a fourth one is like the rest. It is sanctification. Sanctification is a, it's a big word. It has a couple of different meanings, but for our purposes, we're going to use the most common understanding, which is it is the progressive change, the progressive spiritual change that happens in an individual's life as they continue to follow Jesus. It's ongoing, progressive character transformation. It's not merely learning new habits. It's not picking up new disciplines. It's not dropping bad habits. It's bigger than that. It's deeper than that. Trans uh, sanctification is the transformation, the ongoing practical transformation of a person's heart and character. That's what sanctification is. And sanctification only happens through the ministry of the word. It can't happen without it. It doesn't happen. Nobody will be sanctified apart from the ministry of the word. So let's start with this. Sanctification is your becoming the ideal you. That's what it is. I know it sounds new agey when I say it that way, but that's what it is. What is the ideal you? Is it lots of money and six-pack abs? I'll vote for that as, a, as, a, as an ancillary part of it, but that's not what it is. The ideal you is a person who has been made fully human. The ideal you is a person whose image of God is shining brightly in them. The, the ideal you is the person God has made you to be that sin has marred that he is in the process of reforming. That's the ideal you. And that's what sanctification is. That's why in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Paul says, this is the will of God. Ooh, listen up. What's God's will for me? Your sanctification that's what he says. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you would change and be changed. Now, we read that this sanctification only happens by the word. Jesus and John 17, 17 says, sanctify them in truth. This is Jesus praying for us. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So he's praying to the Father that his people would be sanctified, changed, and this only happens in accord with 
the truth. In fact, we, listen to 2 Thessalonians 2.13. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If, if anyone does not obey what we say in this one, I, I did this last time too. There it is. Second, I always go to the wrong chapter. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Here we go. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, in the truth, the word, the truth of the gospel. Sanctification is tied to the word of God. If you want to become, if you want to be changed, if you want to be mature, if you want to be strong, if you want your, your love and your joy and your faith to be what it's supposed to be, you need the ministry of the word. So the most significant things that God will ever do in your life, the most significant things, not the only significant things, but the most significant things that God can do in your life will be what he does inside of you through the ministry of his word. This should reorient how we think about our situations. It doesn't mean that I don't pray for the valley of the shadow of death to come to an end so I could get out into a plane and then up onto a nice hill and chill. Like that's, that's good, that's, that's fine. But eventually I'll be in another valley. So what I really need is, is internal change because the greatest work that God will ever do in my life will be through his word. Let me close with this. Psalm 19, and you can read the second half of Psalm 19, uh, Psalm 19 in particular. Second half of Psalm 19 is all about the word of God. It goes by different names. He calls it the, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord. He calls it the fear of the Lord. But listen to what he says God's word is and what God's word does. And think about your needs, your greatest needs. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. We got a lot of needs. I know we're going through a lot. You guys are going through a lot. Life is hard. Go through dark seasons. But whether you're going through uh, pastures and sunshine or the valley of the shadow of death, your greatest need in both circumstances, the greatest needs that you have to be met are all the various works that God does in your heart through the ministry of his word. So I want to encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus, lay hold of the word of God. Do not let go. I'm not saying you have to be a, a Bible student who's mastered uh, the Bible, but read God's word and look for God's work. And if you're not yet a follower of Christ, I pray that you would consider Jesus, who is called the word of God. He is the clearest, brightest, most perfect representation of the Father. We see him, we see the Father, Jesus said. And Jesus' life and death and resurrection was all put forth to be the means by which sinners like us can be saved. God speaks 
and saves through his son. So look to him. I would encourage you to believe in Christ who takes away sin and guilt and offers life. And then read his word. It's grace upon grace that we might experience an abundance and continuing grace of God to be transformed into the people he's called us to be. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would, uh, that you would meet our needs and do great works. And yes, Lord, we do pray for relief from our afflictions. We do pray for a change in our circumstances, but help us to understand that the most important and significant changes that you will ever do will be changes inside us. We pray, Lord, that you would not only fit us for heaven, but that you would fit us for our circumstances, for they are frequently more than we can bear without your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.